Welcome to Passion. For more information about Passion, please visit us online at www.passionchurch.tv. Now let's join the service already in progress. Monday nights are crucial, and actually, it's, I believe it's Wednesday nights now for intercessory prayer. And I myself um, had to put myself on check uh, that I need to do my part as far as being there and supporting the church. Yeah, we do it away. Uh, we do it at home. We do it throughout the week. Um, but to be here and to set time aside so you can pray and also hear God uh, is important. Um, God gave me word that night that I was here at intercessory prayer. And I'll just go ahead and read the email because it's a lot easier because I have a tendency to ramble. So I won't do that. Um, pastors, I, I first apologize for not sharing this sooner. Uh, I've been corrected by both Amy and Tina for not sharing this with you earlier. While attending prayer on Monday night, there was a vision that I was shown during our quiet time. I saw the members of our church linked arm in arm walking in a straight line. At first, there was only a few of us linked. But slowly the group began to grow. And as the group grew, my, uh, my view of the group panned out and upward to cover a wider area that covered the city, then panned out further to cover the state, and then panned out even further to cover the country. Uh, God spoke to me at that time, and he has called us here at Passion to influence others in ways that are not ordinary. He has called us such a diverse group of people here from different parts of the country to work together arm in arm, hand in hand, to reach not only our city and the state, but also our country. I shared this with Tina and we prayed for the work of God that he asked for all of us. The following Sunday, Warren Beamer spoke and in a second service, he told the church of a vision that he had of me putting on a child's shirt and that it was too small and that was to symbolize passion. That there is not a stage, quote unquote, area large enough to hold what God has planned for us. Our influence is greater than we realize, uh, excuse me, our influence is greater than we realize it will be. You recently sent out an email to, uh, that showed that we influenced uh, our movers cards have made across the country. I believe that this is truly the tip of the iceberg. I know that this is not a new revelation for you because I'm sure that your vision is just that, influence not just the community around us, but further. There are things that God has placed in out your heart uh, that we know not of but are on a greater scale. Uh, that requires more work and dedication on our part. I am excited what is in store for us in the future. Amen. I believe that is a word from the Lord for us, that the influence that God has given us is growing. Anybody excited about that? I'm excited about that. And so with that as a setup, um, we have a special guest. He's not really a guest. He's one of us. He just doesn't get to be here a lot because of his responsibilities. He, I can tell you all of his titles, and we like titles, I guess, and uh, some of us are hung up on titles, and I'm glad he's not. He won't tell you his title, so I'm going to tell you. He's our general superintendent or the presiding bishop of our entire denomination, so he could be anywhere in the world, but instead he's here this morning. And uh, I could tell you that, and I could tell you the doctor that's in front of his name, and I could tell you that he's a great preacher, which you're getting ready to find out he is and all that stuff. But I'm going to tell you like I told the first service. We wouldn't be here if it wasn't for Dr. Carpenter and his wife, Nan. They believed in us, and they helped fund us through the organization that he was over, EVUSA. So really, if you want to really bullet down, the greatest title we can give them is this. They're our friends. They have been friends to us personally. They are friends to us corporately. 
And you can't hang around them very long without realizing that they love us and that they believe in us. And so I am so excited today to have our presiding bishop join us and bring God's word. And it is a powerful word, and I want you to listen carefully. Would you please give a huge passion welcome to our presiding bishop, Dr. Ron Carpenter Sr., as he brings the word this morning. Thank you, Steve. God bless you. Well, it's a real joy to be with you, and I say that not as a social courtesy. It is a joy. Number one, it's a joy to be home. I just got back from 10 days on the road and um, called my wife Thursday night. She said, how you doing? I said, honey, I'm just trying to stay focused enough on what I'm doing to get home. I just want to get home. But it's always good to get home and be able to come to Passion. I believe in this church. I believe in its vision. I believe in its leadership. I believe it has a special place in, in destiny and in God's mind and God's heart to impact this city. It was not put here just to be an alternative place for perfunctory worship. There are enough of those. Uh, Oklahoma City doesn't need just another religious place. There are enough religious places to tend to the religious people. But this church was established for people who want to make a difference, for people who are serious about having an impact on their community and on their city. And I, uh, I just commend you for your passion for outreach and evangelism, your passion for diversity, your passion for the excellence that I see here in ministry. I uh, appreciate your passion for discipleship. And uh, your influence does far exceed your numbers. I've seen most churches whose numbers far exceeded their influence. But this is a church whose influence far exceeds its numbers. And uh, by numbers, you've done really well. Uh, you, you must realize that 80% of the churches that are started in this country don't survive 12 months. So if you survive 12 months, you're in the 2 out of 10 that made it. If you're still around five years later, then you're in the 40% that make it for 60 months. Of the 20% that were left after 12 months, and you will be, and you will be a much more dynamic church at that stage than you are even now. So God's got his hand on Passion Church. You're as small as you'll ever be. And God will do wonderful things in days to come. I was supposed to speak here, I don't know, a year or so ago, and the pastor mentioned it in the first service, and I got sick. It's about as sick as I've ever been. I don't uh, normally get sick, but I got sick off of um, uh, shellfish. Never had a problem with it in my life. It's amazing how you can never have a problem, and then one time your body just reacts in an adverse way. But I can tell you, it'll put you down. It'll make a grown man cry. Uh, I'm proof because I'm a grown man, and I cried. And I was broken out, uh, I mean from head to toe, in whips. And that'll really make a grown man cry if 
but you don't have time to wipe your eyes for scratching everything else. So my wife had to take me to the emergency room. Uh, I was in Houston when it happened. I had to fly home like that on an airplane, and that's miserable. And you got to sit in an airplane seat, and you're just itching from head to toe and don't want everybody to see you scratching. That is an absolutely miserable situation. And then when I got here, she carried me to the emergency room, and then to make a bad situation worse, they gave me an overdose of Benadryl. And if you don't think an overdose of Benadryl will put you out, just take one. And uh, it knocked me out, and the next day she couldn't wake me up. She got scared, thought I was dying. So uh, we were like, who's on first? It was like a comedy of errors. So the next day she carried me back to the emergency room because she thought I was having a reaction to the Benadryl. And uh, when y'all were having church that morning, I was in the emergency room paying them $4,000 to tell me I took too much Benadryl that they gave me the day before. So uh, I'm really happy to be here. And if I'm high on anything today, it'll just be Jesus. It won't be Benadryl, I can assure you that. With the pastor's liberty, I did uh, share a word from Ecclesiastes this morning, but you know, God has a word for every situation, for every group of people. And the word gospel means good news. It comes from an old English word, goat spell, which literally meant good story. So when they were sitting around the pubs in England drinking and telling their fish stories, if one guy told a really good story, the other guy would look at him and say, that was a goat spell. That's a good story. And from that, we get our English word gospel, which is a good story. It's good news. And you could actually turn anywhere in the Bible and start preaching and say, I'm preaching the gospel. Because the whole Bible is good news. Even the bad news is good news. You know, the bad news is hell. The good news is you don't have to go there. The begots, you, you can put Preach anywhere and preach good news. So it's all a good word, but it's not all the good word for a particular situation. And I determined years ago, I don't want to just get up and say something good. Uh, I want to say the good word, not just a good word for a particular situation. And I try to discern where I'm at, who's there, what's happening, what do I feel in this situation. And to tell you the truth, I don't feel the same thing in this service that I felt in the first one. And in an effort to respond to that and be sensitive to that, I want to read another scripture. And I want to say something else that I hope will be the word and believe it will be for this service. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the Song of Solomon. And let me say while you're turning there, it's a real joy to have our General WM Director with us, our Women's Ministries Director, Miss Tammy Lambert. Tammy, wave at us. And her husband, Jimmy, and their son, Trey, who's a student at Southwestern College. So give them a hand. We're delighted to have them. And I can't tell. The lights are blinding. Olivia, is that you? 
Who is this lady right here? Oh, that's not Olivia. Okay, I'm sorry. You look like a dear friend of mine named Olivia. I was really impressed that you came to hear me preach today. What's your name? Lauren? Well, Lauren, I'm impressed that you came to hear me preach today. God bless you. Good to have you. Song of Solomon, chapter 2, has a beautiful, beautiful story here. And I just sense that uh, there's some folk here that need to hear this word from God. Song of Solomon, chapter 2. Solomon is uh, the writer of three books in the Bible, two books and the majority of a third one. And this is one of those two that he wrote the entirety of this book. Now listen to what he says. One of the problems in the Song of Solomon is to know who's talking. And uh, he starts out by saying, "By um, I am the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valleys. And as the lily among thorns, so is my love among the daughters. That's Solomon talking about himself. Rose of Sharon, lily of the valleys. And he says, in speaking of this beautiful young girl that he's fallen in love with, who this book is all about, he said, So is my love among the daughters as the lily is among thorns. She stands out from all the other ladies I know like a lily would stand out in the midst of a briar patch. That's what he says about this beautiful young girl. And then after he compliments her, she compliments him. And she says, well, if I'm like a lily among thorns, as the apple tree is among the trees of the wood, so is my beloved among the sons. The word apple means citrus. And she's saying, just like a citrus tree stands out from ordinary shade trees, so Solomon stands out to me from all the other men I know. I sat down under his shadow with great delight, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. Uh, you remember that little chorus they used to sing years ago? I'm his child. He's my father. His banner over me is love. I never could get the hand motion right on that thing. But that's a real scripture course. He brought me to the banqueting house. His banner over me was love. And then she says, this is still the Shulamite talking, the lady. Stay me with flagons. Comfort me with apples. For I am sick of love. His left hand is under my head, and his right hand doth embrace me. I charge you, O ye daughters of Jerusalem, by the rose and by the hinds of the field, that ye stir not up, nor wake my love, till he please. Solomon was the bastard son of King David in his adulterous relationship with Bathsheba. 
It's amazing how God can take the product of such an unclean situation and elevate him to the position of being king over a nation. And from this bastard son, uh, God developed the wisest man in all the world during his lifetime who had a supernatural gift of divine wisdom and because of that he became renowned. Solomon took the throne of a kingdom that had been united by his father. David was the warrior king. He brought all of the 12 warring tribes together into one nation and was anointed three times until he became king over the entire nation of Israel. Solomon, on the other hand, inherited a kingdom that was at peace. And Solomon's reign saw Israel rise to its greatest place of prominence in world history. Never before nor since has Israel held the place in world prominence economically, politically, and militarily that it held during the 40-year reign of King Solomon. It was the greatest nation in the world at that time. Solomon held a place of prominence so renowned that 850 miles away, the Queen of Sheba heard about his reputation and she made a trip of 850 miles in a caravan traveling 15 miles a day on the back of a camel. That's a pretty good little jump. 15 miles a day an 850 mile trip because she wanted to hear for herself and see for herself the grandeur of Solomon's kingdom. And the Bible says when she entered into his courts, listen to this, when she saw the setting of his servants, now she hadn't seen the king yet. She hadn't even gotten into the inner part of the palace yet. When she just entered his courts and saw the servants, and how they conducted themselves and their joy at serving the king and the grandeur of the outer courts, she was overwhelmed and there was no more breath left in her. And she said, the half was not told me in my kingdom. That's before she ever met him. Saw the real grandeur of the king. Solomon was highly educated and he wrote during his lifetime three books of the Bible, two complete books and most of a third one. And each of those books flows out of a logical period of his life when the Holy Spirit got into his natural urges, his natural feelings and prompted him to express that under the anointing in a book that was inspired and became part of the sacred canon. So when Solomon was an old man, he wrote Ecclesiastes. I read from that book 
in the first service. Ecclesiastes is called the research laboratory of the Bible because in that book, Solomon is looking back on his life. He's an old man now, and old men tend to look back because there's more behind them than there is in front of them. And Solomon is reflecting on his life, and he says, I want you to know I've tried everything to find happiness, to find success, to find joy, to find fulfillment. I've tried everything. Now, you know, if I told you I'd tried everything, you'd have a right to laugh and doubt it because I haven't tried everything. Number one, I ain't had the money to try everything. And number two, I haven't had the time to try everything. Number three, I haven't had the opportunity to try everything. So I can't stand up here today and tell you that I've tried everything. But I have a friend who told me he tried everything. And my friend was the most powerful man in the world. He was the richest man in the world. And when he tells me he tried everything, I believe him. He said, I've tried to gain all of that through power. I've tried to gain happiness and joy and success, fulfillment through fame. I've tried to do it through learning and intellect. I've tried to do it through the appetites of my body. I mean, the man had a thousand wives, you know. I don't think he had any appetites that went unfulfilled. He said, uh, I've tried it all. I had to be the richest man in the world if he had a thousand wives. I've, I've tried it all. Well, he had 300 wives, 700 concubines, but it all played out the same way. But here's a man who says, I've tried it all. And I've come to two conclusions. What are they? I want to know. From the wealthiest, most powerful man in the world, tell me what you've concluded. He said, number one, I've concluded that under the sun, everything is vanity, vanity. And number two, it's vexation of spirit. The word vanity means it's all empty. It's all meaningless. Go right down the list. Fame, power, education, sex, pleasure, whatever. Material goods. I've tried it all. And what I found out that every one of them was empty. Every one of them was meaningless. I thought I had something, but when I got it, it was empty. And then you said, the second thing I found out is that it was vexation of spirit. And that phrase in the Hebrew means pursuit of the wind. In other words, when you get it, you think it's all you'll ever need, but all of a sudden you realize it's empty and then you want something else. So it's always like you're chasing something that's blowing away from you. It's like chasing a piece of paper across a parking lot, and every time you get close to it, the wind gets in it again and blows it away. You ever done that? Pursuit of the wind. So you had a 13-inch 
small screen that was 20 years old and you traded it for the 70-inch flat screen and you thought that would do it for you. But you know, after you watch it a couple of weeks, it don't bring you any more satisfaction than watching the 13-inch one brought you. Because satisfaction ain't in a screen. I don't care what size it is. So you trade the Chevrolet in for a Lexus and you thought that'd do it for you, but after you drive it a while, Driving the Lexus don't bring you any more satisfaction than driving the Chevrolet. Because the joy and satisfaction of life is not in a car. So it don't matter what kind it is. That's what he's saying. It's all empty, and it's all like chasing the wind. He said, so let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. What is it? If you really want to be happy, if you really want to be successful, if you really want to get the fullness of life, Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. But if you'll notice in the King James versions, the word duty of are in italics, which means they weren't in the original Hebrew. They were supplied by the translators. And in the original, it reads, Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole man. You won't be a whole man. You won't be a whole woman. You'll always be a part of a person until you learn how to fill your life up with the only thing that will make you whole, and that is a reverential fear of God and living right before him. Fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole man, the whole woman. Then in his middle life, Solomon wrote the book of Proverbs. All of it except the latter part. Proverbs is called the book of James of the Old Testament. It's a book of practical wisdom. Uh, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand a proverb. A proverb is just a, a pithy little saying that has a moral to it. Somebody said it's infinite truth in a finite capsule. What is a proverb? i give you one. Here it is. Better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a stalled ox where hatred abides. <laughs> and that's a direct quote from the book of Proverbs. Better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a stalled ox where hatred abides. Now, if you were translating that in 21st century colloquial English in Oklahoma, you'd read it something like this right here. Better is a dinner of collard greens with somebody you like than a T-bone steak with somebody that don't like you. That's what he's saying. Is that true? Sure, it's true. I've had a many of an expensive meal ruined by bad company. <laughs> Look, I've eaten a lot of Denny's 4.99 specials that were meaningful, not because of eggs and toast, but because of who was sitting across the booth from me. Better is a dinner of herbs where love is.
than a stalled ox where hatred abides. That's a proverb. Midlife is the practical time of life. That's when you're building security for the future, retirement, establishing your home, taking care of your wife, taking care of your kids, getting them ready for college. So out of that practical time of life, he writes the very practical book. But youth is the romantic time of life. That's when our thoughts turn toward love, romance. Of course, hopefully, we don't lose all of that as we go through. But it is a pastime of youth. We're searching for our soulmate. We want to make the right decisions. We want to be wise. And out of that period of Solomon's life as a young man, when his thoughts were turned to love and romance, he writes this book called The Song of Solomon. The Song of Solomon is a poem. It's really an autobiographical sketch of a love affair between Solomon and a beautiful servant girl who worked in his vineyards as the king. She worked in the royal vineyards. And he tells us in chapter 1 that one day he was out riding through the vineyards inspecting them. And he saw this beautiful Shulamite girl, olive skin, raven hair, dark eyes, and she ravished his heart. He could not get that spectacle out of his mind. And when she saw the king in his royal chariot with his royal entourage riding through inspecting his vineyards, not only did she ravish his heart, he ravished her heart. And neither of the two of them could get the other out of his mind. So when you read the Song of Solomon, you're reading Solomon's innermost feelings about this young girl. And what you have is the most physically graphic book in the Bible. Uh, Orthodox Jewish boy to this day is not allowed to read the Song of Solomon privately until he's 30 years old because it is very graphic in some of its terminology. However, what you have to understand as a Christian is this. The Holy Ghost got into that relationship and elevated it to another dimension of significance. So you don't just have Solomon writing about his feelings for a Shulamite girl or her feelings for him. What you have all of a sudden is Solomon becoming Jesus. You and I become the Shulamite girl. He becomes the bridegroom. We become the bride. And the Song of Solomon becomes a record of a very intimate love affair between Christ and the Christian. 
And if you ever realize this book is about you, this book is about your personal, intimate relationship with God. It goes deeper, probes further, says things that no other book in the Bible says about you and your relationship with Jesus. Once you understand that, in my opinion, it becomes the most beautiful book in the Bible. Somebody said that the Song of Solomon is real soul language. And you talk about soul language. This is soul right here. The Song of Solomon is what you feel deep down on the inside that you can't say to anybody else. Even the people who know you closest, it's your really deep feelings about God and what he's doing in your life. It's just something that you and him communicate in, soul language. You know, when we come to the altar to pray, and I don't care how much the pastor says, and I forget about everybody around you, nobody does. I've never been to an altar to pray when I wasn't aware there wasn't somebody around me. And, and I want it to be a meaningful time, but you're always a little conscious of what you're saying out loud because you know somebody's listening. Even though their motive and their intent is to be helpful, they're listening. So chances are you're not going to come down here to the altar and say, as the apple tree is among the trees of the wood, so is my beloved among the sons. I sat down under his shadow with great delight, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. He brought me to the banqueting house. See, you ain't going to come down here and do that. Because if you do, the boys in white going to come get you and take you off. You don't want anybody to hear you doing that. But when you get way back in the closet and you close the door and nobody can hear, that's when you look up in the darkness of that closet and you see him and you say, Lord, as the apple trees are among the trees of the wood, so are you among all the ones I know. You're the greatest. You're the fairest of 10,000. Your fruit is sweeter than any other sweet fruit. And, and he knows what you're trying to say, and you know he knows. And all of a sudden, there's a line of communication that's opened up in intimate spiritual relationship that you just can't touch in any other setting. That's soul language. Some people have said the Song of Solomon is spiritual pillow talk. You know, pillow talk ain't something you sit around at, out back and say to your wife when you got 40 people at the table. But pillow talk is what you whisper at night, 2 a.m., when there's nobody around but just you and her and you turn over and whisper in her ear. 
That's the language that just you and your wife understand. It would sound absolutely silly and ridiculous to anybody else. But that language communicates her to you and vice versa. That's this book. That's this book. It's what you say to Jesus when nobody else is listening. And if they heard it, it wouldn't make any sense to anybody but just you. I could dwell here a long time, but let me just hurriedly say, chapter 1, Solomon's riding through his vineyards. He sees this beautiful girl. He inquires about her, who she is. They tell him that she's one of the slave laborers working in the vineyard. He goes on, can't forget about her. So in chapter 2, he does what every Oriental king had the privilege of doing. He invited her to the palace to spend an evening with him. Now, you got to get this picture, folks. Here is a slave girl. This is a slave girl. She works in the vineyards all day long. She probably, like most of the slaves, lived in a little mud stick hut just outside the walls of the city. And at the end of the day, she goes home to her little mud hut made with sticks and mud with an animal skin door and with the dirt of the day still on her before she can clean herself up, <coughs> she hears a commotion outside and she pulls back that animal skin that serves as her protection from society. And to her amazement, standing at her front door is a royal entourage with the king's ambassador stepping out of his chariot, walking to her front door and saying to her, Madam, The king would love to have the pleasure of your presence in the palace this evening. Can you imagine standing there with the dirt of her day still on her? She has just been invited to the palace. But in reality, that happened. That happened to all of us. There was a time when in the dirt of your former life, before you had the filth of what you had been in washed off of you, you heard a commotion and it was the Holy Ghost convicting you of your sin. <laughs> and he said, 
you understand you don't deserve this invitation. But the king wants to invite you to come and dine with him in the palace this evening. And like Mephibosheth of old, we took our crippled feet and we stuck them under the king's table. And with all of our limitations and all of our crippled problems, we have been dining in the palace ever since. What an invitation. What an amazing story that a slave could wind up in the palace. So in chapter 2, we follow her as she goes to meet the king. She's overwhelmed. She's never even been in the palace before. So evidently she had low blood sugar or something. I don't know what it was. <clears throat> and she stops outside the palace in the royal gardens. She said, wait just a minute. I got to get myself together here. And she sat down on one of the benches under a citrus tree. And as she looked at that tree and all of its beauty with the fruit hanging on it, we don't know what kind of tree it was. The word just says, it says apple here, but in the Hebrew it's the word citrus. Some kind of citrus tree, probably an orange tree. And, and she just picked an orange and began to eat on it and suck the juice of it. And she got revived in her spirit. And she thought about Solomon and she said, you know, just like this tree stands out from all the other trees, Solomon stands out from everybody I know. And just like this piece of fruit I ate was sweet to my taste and revived me, so my thoughts of Solomon and my love for him just stir me and revive me. Keep it on the upper plane now. She said, I sat down under the shadow of his tree with great delight. See, once you're invited to the palace, then you wind up sitting under the shadow of the tree. You live your life under the influence of the cross. And the cross throws its shadow on you. And under the influence of that shadow, you then live day after day after day. And the fruit of that tree will become sweet to your taste. What Calvary produces in your life will bless you and everybody around you. She finally got to her feet gathered her strength and her energy and her fortitude and she walks for the first time in her slave life into the most glorious palace on planet earth. You got to understand, Israel is at its pinnacle of power. Solomon is the greatest king in the world. And she's walking into a dining hall that was built to receive royalty. This dining hall was built to impress people. It's where he received all the diplomats from the world in a dining hall with a table that seated over a hundred people. Marble floors, tapestries from all over the world, silver and gold. And she walks into this unbelievable dining hall and at the end of a hundred seat table, 
there are only two plates. And at the end of the table, just one person. Solomon. <laughs> she says, he brought me into the banqueting house. He brought me into this unbelievable dining room. His banner over me was love. You know what that means? That means he brought me into the greatest dining hall on the face of the planet. But I couldn't see the marble in the floors and I didn't see the tapestry on the walls and I didn't see the gold and silver utensils and all the different kinds of food. All I could see was the object of my love. He brought me to the banqueting house and his banner over me was love. <laughs> then she said, stay me with flagons. Comfort me with apples, for I am sick of love. If you literally translate that from the Hebrew, it would read something like this right here. Stop up the pipes and revive me with smelling salts, because I'm about to pass out from all this love. That's what she said. What she's saying is, I can't take any more of this. Turn it off. Stop up the pipes. Turn it off. Revive me with smelling sauce. I am about to pass out. I am overwhelmed with emotion. I want to ask you, have you ever felt like that in your worship? Have you actually ever felt so overwhelmed in the presence of God that you had to pray and say, Lord, would you please back off? I don't believe I can handle it. I have. I wish I could tell you I felt that way every day. I'd love to feel that way every day. I don't. But I have felt that way enough. I know what it feels like to say, Lord, I can't take any more of this. Would you please turn off the pipes for just a little while? That's why in the Bible, every time you see somebody in God's presence, they fall out. Because you can't handle that in the flesh. John saw him in Revelation 1. He fell down before him as a dead man. And Jesus had to go over and touch him so he could stand up and receive the revelation. And that's what you're saying. You say, Lord, I can't handle this anymore. You're either going to have to glorify me and touch me or you're going to have to back off because I'm going to die if you don't. And then she said this, and everything I said was to get me right here. This is what I'm going to leave with you. This is what I felt sitting there. When the pastor got up today, he just confirmed my feelings. She said, his left hand is under my head. His right hand doth embrace me. Now, if you forget everything I say this morning, don't forget what you're getting ready to see. 
because you're going to need it this afternoon, tomorrow. I guarantee you, before you come back next Sunday, you're going to need to remember this. And a picture is worth a thousand words. So I'm going to eliminate the next thousand words and just give you a picture. Here's what she is saying. So the next time the devil comes to you and tries to make you doubt where you are in relationship to God or where God is in relationship to you, and he will, you remember that picture. You'll need it. Because you, as God's child, as the lover of his soul, you are securely wrapped up in a two-armed embrace of the master. He's got you. His left hand is under your head. His right hand is around your waist. And it's important that you remember it's a two-armed embrace because at some point or other, you're going to need both of them. See, his right hand represents his hand of obvious, miraculous power working in your life. The right hand in the Bible is always the hand of power. It's the hand of privilege. It's the hand of authority. It's the hand of position. That's why when Jesus finished his redemptive work, he ascended back and took his seat at the right hand of the majesty on high, the right hand of the Father. The fact that he sat down tells us he was finished. The fact that he was at the right hand tells us he had all the power, privileges, and authority of the Father in order to dispense the affairs of the universe. He's at the hand of power. When the children of Israel were wandering through the wilderness, there were times when they would get hungry or thirsty or discouraged for one reason or another. And you remember how God always encouraged them? Sometimes with a gentle rebuke, he said, Don't you remember how I led you out of Egypt with an outstretched arm and with the power of my right hand. That was God saying, don't forget my right hand. 
When the water turned to blood, that was my right hand. When the dirt turned to lice, that was my right hand. When the flies came in, that was my right hand. When the darkness came in in the middle of the day, that was my right hand. That was me doing something obviously unusual, out of the ordinary, supernatural, miraculous. That was my right hand working to deliver you. And remember when you got thirsty, I gave you water out of a rock. That was my right hand. When you got hungry, I had bread fall out of the sky. That was my right hand. That don't happen every day. When you wanted meat, I sent quail flying in three foot off of the ground and you just picked them out of the air. That was my right hand. Remember, I delivered you with my right hand. You can trust my right hand. And she's saying, his right hand embraces me. What does that mean? His right hand is around my waist, which means I can look down and I can see it and I know God's doing something miraculous in my life. Now, we're Pentecostal folk and we believe in the right hand theology. We believe in the miraculous. We believe that you can owe a $300 bill and go to the mailbox and there can be a check in it for $300 from somebody you never met in your life. You ever had that to happen? Had it to happen. Been there, done that, and got that check out of the mailbox. That's the right hand. We believe the preacher can call somebody up here and lay his hand on them, anoint them with oil, and they can be sick when they come and well when they go back to their seat. That's right hand stuff. However, what happens when you owe $300 and you keep going to the mailbox and there's no check in it? I've been there too. In fact, it was empty more times than it was full. What happens when you're sick and you come and the preacher prays for you and you go back and sit down and feel just as bad as you did when you walked up there? What do you do then? What do you do when you're looking for the right hand and you can't see it? And there's no obvious evidence of the miracle working power in your life. What do you do? Well, I hate to tell you, but most of the Pentecostal folk I've met have a panic attack right there. They just absolutely have a panic attack take two Valium and say, I'm going to bed, going to sleep. Wake me up when this nightmare is over. But there is an alternative to that. If you understand that God's got another hand. See, he don't just have a right hand that you can see. He's got a left hand too. He's not handicapped. God's got a left hand and it's under your head. The problem is since we don't have any eyes back there, we can't see it. So God's left hand is the way he works in your life when you can't see anything. 
God's left hand is the way he works in your life when it's not obvious that anything miraculous is going on when you like to find something and you can't. That's God's hand of providential care. That's when God is working through natural sources to perform supernatural things. All you can see is the glove of nature, but God's got his hand in the glove manipulating it to do things that will bless your life. You just can't see it because it's not obvious. At that point, we have to trust Romans 8.28. That's why I know it's true. And no matter what my circumstances are in life, every time I flip the Bible open and read it, it reads the same way. I was reading it not long ago in my uh, personal devotions. I've read through Romans 8. Well, through Romans. Came to Romans 8, started reading. And I got to verse 28, and I thought, well, I know that one. I've quoted that one a thousand times. So I'm just going to kind of slide on over that one. I've, in essence, I was saying I didn't learned everything that one's got, so I'll move on to another one. Verse 29 is pretty deep. Verse 30 is pretty deep. So I'll get over in those and stimulate my thinking. And I started to slide on past verse 28, and the Spirit of God checked me. He said, Ronnie, he always calls me Ronnie when he talks to me. Ain't nobody calls me Ronnie except my mama, my wife, and God. He said, Ronnie, did you notice what Romans 8.28 does not say? That's exactly what God said. And I stopped, and out loud, I said, no, Lord, I didn't. I said, uh, to tell you the truth, I spent most of my life trying to figure out what it did say. I ain't really given a lot of thought to what it don't say. And the Lord spoke to me a second time. He said, read it again. Now, God didn't say this, but when he said, read it again, I knew exactly what he was talking about. I thought about that little Kellogg commercial that came out some time ago. It said, taste them again for the first time. And God was telling me to read it again as if I'd never read it before. He was saying, get rid of all your preconceived ideas and just read it as if you're reading it for the first time. And I did. I backed up. And I tried to get all of the debris out of my mind, and I started reading it. And I found out that it don't say what I thought it said. It don't say what you probably think it says. It don't say what most of us think it says, even when we actually reading what it says. See, most of the time when we read that verse, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God and those who are called according to his purpose. Now, we could quote that. We all know it. But we're thinking, we're quoting that, we're thinking this. And we know that all things are good to those who love God and to those who are the called according to his purpose. Read it again. That ain't what it said. I wish it said that. I wish I could stand up here and tell you it said that. It does not say all things are good. To them that love God. Because some things are bad. Even if you love God. It ain't going to all be good. Just because you love God. It ain't all going to go good. Just because you love God. It ain't all going to feel good. Just because you love God. I wish it did. 
But sometimes bad things happen to good people. And the only satisfaction I can arrive in that fact is God never told me it wouldn't. What he said is this. Don't worry about it. He said, all things work together to produce something good. What God said is this. Ronnie, you forget about the things. I'll take care of the things. No matter what the things are, you stay focused, you trust me. And I will take A-double-L, all things. There's no qualifier. So God is saying, I will take the good things that touch your life and I'll make good things out of them. But if something bad touches your life, I'll take the bad thing and make something good out of that too. I'll take all the encouraging things that touch your life. I'll make something good out of it. But if some discouraging stuff touches your life, I'll make something good out of that too. I'll take all things, the good, I'll take the bad. I'll take the encouraging, I'll take the discouraging. I'll take the helpful, I'll take the hurtful. I'll take the pleasurable, I'll take the painful. I'll take everything that touches you, and if you'll just trust me while you're going through it, I'll turn it into something that'll bless you and bless everybody around you. And if you don't want to shout about it, And work it out for your good and my glory. Just trust me. And I guarantee you today, if I took this microphone and if Joseph was here and I said, Joseph, would you come up here? I want you to give a word of testimony to the Passion Church congregation. And I gave Joseph the microphone and said, Joseph, we all know a little bit about your life, but firsthand, would you please tell us what is the absolutely the worst thing that ever happened to you? I don't think he'd hesitate one second. I think he'd grab the microphone and say, Well, Brother Carpenter, thank you for the opportunity to give a word of testimony here at the Passion Church. And I can say without any fear of contradiction that the most painful thing, the most devastating thing, the worst thing that ever happened to me was the day my brothers bought me up out of that pit and sold me as a slave. Well, if that is the most painful thing, the most devastating thing, the worst thing that ever happened to you, could you tell us what is the best thing, the most blessed thing that ever happened to you in your life? Yes, sir. Without a moment's hesitation, I can tell you the very best thing that ever happened to me in my life was the day my brothers brought me out of brought me out of that pit and sold me as a slave because if they hadn't have done it I never would have been the second most powerful man in the world and prime minister of the greatest kingdom on earth I never could have saved my brothers never could have saved my family never could have saved the kingdom if they hadn't brought me out of that pit and sold me as a slave that's the best thing ever happened to me God 
And when his brother stood in front of him, knowing all of a sudden this is the boy that we pulled out of a pit, this is the boy we hated, this is the brother we sold, and now our lives are just hanging by a thread, and we're here asking him to save us. And knowing with the lift of an eyebrow, they were out of there. But instead of a clenched fist, they saw a tear. Joseph said, it's all right. What is that? He said, it's all right. It's all right. It's all right that you hated me. It's all right that you sold me as a slave. No, that ain't right. That's wrong. No, it's all right. It's all right. It's all right that Potiphar's wife lied on me, accused me of raping her when I didn't do it. It's all right that I had a miscarriage of justice and they convicted me of something I didn't do. It's all right that I rotted for three years in a jail cell and thought everybody forgot me. That's a, no, 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 that ain't all right. That's, that's all wrong. No, it's all right. It's all right. It's all right. You know why it's all right? Because even though you meant it to me for evil, God meant it to me for good. Stand with me, will you? And the very reason I just felt so impressed of the Lord to share this word with you is because I think there's some folk here today need to understand that you're going through some trash. If it's any comfort to you, we've all been through some. Either in the past, or we're going through it with you right now, or we'll go through it tomorrow, one or the other. We're all just trash-bound people. And we all have debris that we have to deal with in our life. Somebody asked me one time, said, don't you get discouraged much? I said, no, not much. I don't expect a lot out of folks, so when I, when I don't get it, I don't get disappointed. Only time you get disappointed is when you expect more than people give. Uh, I'm a medically diagnosed type A. I'm, I'm pretty upbeat about everything. I'm energetic. I stay on the go all the time. I don't get down much, physically or otherwise. But I do remember one morning in my life when I woke up for no apparent reason and just didn't want to go. I'd heard preachers talk about being burned out. I had a 32-year-old preacher come to me when I was state superintendent. He hadn't been pastoring, but six months he come to me and said, I'm burned out. I said, what? I mean, the boy's 32 years old. He'd been pastoring six months, and he's burned out. I was trying to be kind, but I want to say, son, you ain't burned long enough to burn out. You ain't burned hard enough to burn out. And I used to think that burnout was a cop-out for people that couldn't suck it up and go on. Yeah, that's, what I wanted. that's what I really wanted to say if I wasn't such a nice guy. Just suck it up and go on. Until one morning, April 1997, I woke up burned out. I didn't go to bed burned out. I still loved Jesus. I didn't backslide. 
still wanted to serve God. I just didn't want to do anything else. I didn't want to go to work. I didn't want to pray for nobody. I didn't want to help anybody. I didn't want to go talk to anybody. I was just burned out. I was just tired. I didn't know why I got that way. Didn't know what to do about it because I've never been that way. And I had to go for three months like that. Nobody knew I even felt that way except my wife and my secretary. She had to know because she had to carry most of the load. Everybody thought I was doing a really great job. They didn't know. That it was taking twice as much effort for me to do what I was doing. And I was getting half of the satisfaction out of twice as much effort. It just, it took more and it meant less. And for three months, I had to get up every day and make myself go like that. Until God miraculously delivered me from it in a service one night. The guy laid his hand on me and prayed. And I fell out in the floor for about 10 minutes and got up and it was gone. Now, I don't know if people normally just wake up one day burned out or not. That's my story. And most of them who are burned out don't get over it by being knocked out in the church service. That's just my story. But I've been through a lot of one-timers in my life, stuff that I've only experienced one time. And I've thought about them, and I think, well, Lord, maybe you just let me experience it one time. So from that point on, whenever I see anybody else in that same problem, I can empathize with them. And when somebody comes to me now and says, man, I'm struggling, you know the first thing I think about? I think about those three months when I got up every day. And brother took a whipping to go do what I had to do, but I went and did it anyway. Suck it up and go on. But it makes my heart go out to them now. Now, I want you to know I'm not discouraged this morning. I'm really encouraged. I'm feeling good today. But if I were, I wouldn't hesitate to lift my hand and say, Brother Carmen, I'm fighting some stuff this week. It's been tough. It's took a toll on me. I just... I need prayer today. Because when that guy called me out that night in church and he said, I want you to come up here, I didn't hesitate. I was ready to go. And when he laid his hand on me and I fell out in the floor, it was sweet deliverance. But if you're here today and, and, and you're a reason that the Lord just moved me in this direction, you still love Jesus, you're passionate about God and what he's doing, but you're just dealing with some stuff and it's made it tough and you're struggling in some areas. I, I want you just to lift your hand. It's all right. It's okay. It's okay to struggle. It's okay to get discouraged. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for the hands. Someone else. It's all right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I want the pastor to come and I'm going to ask him to lead us in prayer and while he does I'm going to walk through the sanctuary and lay my hand on the folks who raised your hand 
I want to pray for a special ministry of God's grace for you during this time so that you will be more than a conqueror through this struggle point in your life. And he'll work it all out for your good and his glory. He's going to do that. But I want to pray for special grace for you while it's happening. Pastor, would you come and just pray, all of us, one for another. And I'm going to walk and pray for these people who raised your hand while he does that. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful this morning for your right hand. I'm thankful that you still have miracle working power. I'm thankful this morning that we can turn to you in our time of need and we can visibly see your right hand, your power hand at work in our lives. I thank you at a moment's notice you can bring healing. I thank you at a moment's notice you can bring provision. I thank you for at a moment's notice you can bring a change, a breakthrough. God, that in one moment you can turn everything around. I thank you for your right hand today. And I testify of this fact. I've seen your right hand at work. And I trust your right hand today that you can break in and move on my behalf. But Father, I am also thankful today for your left hand. I'm thankful for those moments in my own life when I wasn't sure what was happening, but I knew in my knower that you were at work. I thank you that even when I can't see you moving, even when I'm not sure I know what you're doing, even on days when I cannot trace you, I can still trust you. I can still trust you that you've got my back. I can still trust you that you've got my heart. I can still trust the fact that you've got my family. I can still trust the fact that you've got my kids. I can still trust the fact that you've got my provision taken care of. I can trust you and know that your left hand will not fail me. That it will uphold me and sustain me even in the painful moments. So, Father, I'm asking you to do what your word says you will do today. I'm asking you to work everything together for our good. The bad things, the good things, the painful things, the pleasurable things. All those things, I pray that you would begin to mix them up. And produce out of those things an anointing. An anointing. The ability, the supernatural ability to turn all of that for good. Father, I pray over my people today. I pray for those that are doing well, those that are that came in bouncing in their step and a gleam in their eye and a song in their heart. I thank you for that. I thank you for touching them. I thank you for encouraging them. And I pray that that, that exuberant spirit that resides in them would bleed over on others and that they would have the ability to testify to those around them this week that don't feel that way. I pray that that passion would rub off. But Father, I also pray for my folks that came in discouraged and downhearted and this discouraged in their spirit not sure you're even still on the scene then father this morning i pray that right now they would sense and understand and they would be able to walk out of here with their head held high knowing that you're still on the throne and you're still able and you're still at work and you're pulling strings and you're making ways of escape And we cannot outrun your goodness and your mercy and your favor. 
And at the moment that we think we've gone to a place where we don't feel that anymore, it will chase us down. And we'll sense your hand at work. And so, Father, this week I'm praying that you'd allow my people to extend a right hand of God to those in their workplace and those at school and those in the community. Miracle working power would flow out of them. But I also pray that that left hand would be extended and we would just walk behind people that don't even know we're doing it and we would pray for them and we would lift them up and we would encourage them and strengthen them. Thank you for your word today, Father. I thank you today that we're loved beyond measure. Thank you that you're so good to us. I pray that we would return that love to you in all that we say and do. And Father, we'll praise you for it. We'll exalt your name for it forever. And when we see your hands at work, what we'll do is we'll throw up both hands and we will exclaim that you're worthy and that you're mighty and that you're worthy of our praise. And we will exalt you forever. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being here this morning. If you get an opportunity, I encourage you to bless Dr. Carpenter on the way out and let him know how much you appreciated the word. Extend both hands this week. You can start right now by extending the right hand of fellowship to one another. In Jesus' name. been a privilege to have you join us for this time of ministry. To find more passion resources or to make a donation online, visit www.passionchurch.tv. Remember, you can't live without passion.